I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 70, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 3, pages 525 to 539. The first concerns... Bishop McQuaid of Rochester, who originally opposed the doctrine of papal infallibility. He had a, a later had a change of mind and heart and became an ardent anti-Americanist and defender of Rome. In contrast, Archbishop Spalding of Baltimore, who originally championed the doctrine, moved into the Americanist camp with Archbishop McCloskey. This means that even by early 1870, the Americanist position had not yet been carved in stone and the American hierarchical lineup against Rome was still in the state of flux. The second point is that the opposition of leading American prelates to the solemn definition of papal infallibility was strictly a hierarchical affair without resort, without grassroots support from the ordinary Catholic in the pew. The same can be said of many of the pet projects of the liberal bishops, including the conciliatory spirit of Americanism that demanded a watering down of the faith to make Catholicism more acceptable to a hostile Protestant population and the promotion of a false ecumenicalism that put all religions on an equal footing. Americanism in the Age of Gibbons When Archbishop Spalding died in February 1872, Bishop Bailey of Newark became the eighth Bishop of Baltimore, but Bailey was only five years into his bishopric when he became gravely ill and Bishop James Gibbons of Richmond was named coadjutor of the Baltimore Diocese. Upon Bailey's death in the fall of 1877, Gibbons succeeded to the all-important Metropolitan See of Baltimore, where for the next 42 years he would endeavor to complete the transformation of the Catholic Church in America that had begun with Archbishop Carroll nearly 90 years before. Archbishop Gibbons led the charge of the Americanist Brigade for political democracy and enlightened republicanism as the new savior of the world. For this great progress of the church, we are indebted to the civil liberty we enjoy in our enlightened republic. Whereas often the church has been hampered and forced to struggle for existence in the genial atmosphere of American liberty, she blossoms like the rose, Gibbons pontificated. Catholics in the pew were told that the policy of separation of church and state guaranteed that government would not interfere in matters of faith and morality. On the other hand, the Pope was strictly their spiritual leader and as such was duty-bound to uphold political, total political freedom and freedom of association for the faithful. Catholic immigrants were ordered to come out of their ethnic ghettos and become Americanized as quickly as possible so as to open themselves up to the advantages of the American way. The forced busing of ethnic priests to parishes from their immigrant flock was used to accelerate the process of assimilation and homogenization. In 1889, Catholic University of America was established in Washington, D.C., in the heart of the nation's capital. It became the intellectual hub and meeting lodge of clerical and lay Americanists. In April 20, 1884, Pope Leo XIII issued Humanum Genus, 
the last in a long line of papal encyclicals condemning Freemasonry and secret societies that began with Clement XII in 1738 and continued under Benedict XIV, Pius VII, Leo XII, Pope Pius VIII, Gregory XVI, and Pius IX. Despite this clear teaching of the Church for almost 150 years, Gibbons promoted the noble and holy order of the Knights of Labor, a highly secretive and ritualized fraternal lodge that attracted a wide assortment of Marxists, anarchists, and freethinkers, and all-around revolutionary and anti-clerical workers. The Knights of Labor was the precursor of the American Federation of Labor that attracted many Catholic workers and became a hotbed of communism during the 1930s and 40s. As a young man, Gibbons had become totally absorbed in the preaching and teachings of Father Isaac Hecker, the founder of the Paulist Order in the United States and a precursor of a Catholic Pentecostalism. Father Hecker preached in an ecumenical and non-judgmental contemporary idiom, and his sermons on Catholicism were notorious for their novelty and defense of Americanism. After his ordination, Gibbons also committed himself to ecumenicalism. As, an Archb- as Archbishop of Baltimore, he repeatedly scandalized the Catholic faithful by preaching from Protestant pupil pulpits, using a Protestant Bible, and intoning Protestant prayers. On September 11, 1893, Cardinal Gibbons gave the opening and closing prayers at the World Parliament of Religions, a pre assisi happening held at the Chicago World's Fair. Gibbons shared the sacred space with Theosophist Annie Besant, Swami Vivekananda, and representatives of Judaism, Protestantism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and a gaggle of pagans, witches, pagan witches. On hand to assist Cardinal Gibbons were Archbishop John Ireland of St. Paul, Father John J. Keane, the former Bishop of Richmond, now Rector of Catholic University of America, Irish-born Archbishop Patrick John Ryan of Philadelphia and Dutch-born Francis A. Johnson, who was consecrated Archbishop of New Orleans by Cardinal Gibbons. Father John Ireland had attended Vatican Council I. As a proctor in Rome, he met with young Bishop Gibbons, and through Gibbons he made the acquaintance of Father Hecker, who was also serving as a proctor. Father Ireland once described Hecker as the ornament, the flower of American priesthood. A popular and dynamic personality and leader of the Catholic Total Abstinence Union, Ireland lectured at the North American College in Rome, and he was instrumental in the creation of Catholic University of America, as well as the College of St. Thomas and St. Paul Seminary in his own archdiocese. Archbishop Ireland's vision of the priesthood was shaped by his own worldview. In a lecture he gave on November 10, 1889, he said, This is an intellectual age. It worships intellect. By intellect, public opinion, the ruling power of the age is formed. The church herself will be judged by the standard of intellect. Catholics must excel in religious knowledge. They must be in the forefront of intellectual movements of all kinds. The age will not take kindly to religious knowledge separated from secular knowledge. When Catholic University opened its doors on November 13, 1889, Ireland's close friend John Keane resigned as Bishop of Richmond and became the university's first rector. 
Keane shared the liberal political views of Gibbons in Ireland. He defended Catholic membership in the Freemasonic lodges of the Knights of Labor and was instrumental in convincing the American bishops to send an official delegation to the 1893 World Parliament of Religion. Another prominent Americanist prelate closely allied with Gibbons, Ireland, Keane, and Hacker was Monsignor Dennis J. O'Connell. Gibbons sent O'Connell to Rome in 1885 to lobby for Catholic University of America. Gibbons remained in Rome and became the rector of the North American College. He became famous for his quip, I am a Catholic but not a papist. As noted earlier, Archbishop, later Cardinal John McCloskey of New York, was also a confirmed Americanist, as was the late Archbishop Martin Spaulding's nephew, John J. John L. Spaulding, who was consecrated the first Bishop of Peoria by Cardinal McCloskey in St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1877. The Loyal Opposition. On October 10, 1885, Bishop Michael Corrigan, the former Bishop of Newark, who had served as co-editor for the Archdiocese of New York for four, five years after Cardinal McCloskey fell ill, became the new Archbishop of New York, together with Bishop McQuaid of Rochester and Francis Silas Chattard, Bishop of Vincennes, Indianapolis. Corrigan became a leading opponent of Americanism in the Catholic Church. These prelates were backed by German Catholics and other non-Irish ethnic groups who had consistently resisted assimilation into the dominant Anglo-Protestant culture since the time of Carroll. German-Americans resented the Irish domination of American Catholicism. They wanted their own Germanic, German-language parochial schools and argued for strong ethnic parishes that would enjoy a certain degree of independence from the hierarchy Irish prelates like Gibbons and Ryan and Major says quickly moved to squelch this movement in the church, which they correctly perceived as a threat to the Americanist policies that they held dear. In most cases, Rome came down in favor of the Americanist hierarchy, although not all. Corrigan and McQuaid were among the most vocal opponents of the building of Catholic University of America. They believed that the financial needs of diocesan seminaries should come first, and in any case, they argued that a Catholic university should not be located in a moral quagmire like Washington, D.C. Corrigan and McQuaid also opposed Gibbons and company on other political fronts, including Catholic involvement in the Knights of Labor and support for the liberal Republican Party that was especially favored by Bishop Ireland. Third Plenary Council opens in Baltimore. By the time the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore opened on November 9, 1884, the largest council held outside of Rome since the Council of Trent, the division within the ranks of the American hierarchy was readily apparent. Pope Leo XIII, who occupied the chair of Peter and the Roman Curia, was a, were awakened to this growing voices of rebellion coming from across the Atlantic. Unlike earlier plenary sessions, this council was initiated by the Apostolic See. All the Metropolitans had been summoned to Rome for the previous year the previous year for formal meetings with officials from the Congregation of Propaganda to draft the schemata for the council. The American hierarchy pressed hard for the right to reject Rome's election of archbishops to major American sees and to substitute 
one of their own choices. Rome said no. The Holy See, in keeping with traditional protocol regarding regulating plenary council, wanted to send an apostolic delegate to preside over the council. Cardinal Gibbons, who headed the proceedings, balked and Rome backed off temporarily. With 14 archbishops and 61 bishops in attendance at the Third Plenary Council, Archbishop Ireland delivered a stunning opening address on the virtues of Americanism. Republic of America, receive from me the tribute of my love and of my loyalty. I am proud to do the homage, and I pray from my heart that thy glory never be dimmed. Esto perpetua. Thou bearest in thy hands the brightest hopes of the human race. God's mission to thee is to show to nations that man is capable of the highest liberty. O oh, be ever free and prosperous, that liberty may triumph, the true liberty triumph over the earth from the rising to the setting sun. Esto perpetua. Believe me, no hearts love thee more ardently than Catholic hearts. No tongues speak more honestly thy praises than Catholic tongues. No bound, no hands will be lifted up stronger and more willing to defend in war and peace thy laws and institutions than Catholic hands. Esto perpetua. Christ the King had been publicly disowned by Archbishop Ireland with the blessing of Archbishop Gibbons in front of the entire hierarchy. On December 7, 1884, the council issued a follow-up pastoral letter that was drafted by Archbishop, drafted by Bishop Ireland and signed by Archbishop Gibbons on behalf of all the American bishops. The section titled Accusation of Double Allegiance was particularly noteworthy. We repudiate the assertion that we need to lay aside any of our devotedness to our church to be true Americans. No less illogical would be the notion that there is aught in the free spirit of our American institutions incompatible with perfect with perfect docility to the Church of Christ. Now there are in the world more devoted adherents of the Catholic Church, the See of Peter and the Vicar of Christ, than the Catholics of the United States. Narrow insular national views and jealousies concerning ecclesiastical authority and church organization may have sprung naturally enough from the selfish policy of certain rulers and nations in bygone times, but they find no sympathy in the spirit of the true American Catholic. The document goes on to discuss matters that have been, have been decided upon in the preparatory meetings of the Vatican a year earlier that included improved seminary training and education of the clergy, pastoral rights, Christian education for all, the importance of scripture readings in the everyday life of Catholics, the protection of the Sabbath from creeping commercialization, avoidance of membership in forbidden and secret societies and home and foreign missions. Again, as in previous pastoral letters, the hierarchy condemned divorce and remarriage. In common with all Christian believers and friends of civilization, we deplore the havoc wrought by the divorce laws of our country. So much for the aforementioned compatibility of the free spirit of our American institutions with God laws. God's laws. After the plenary, third plenary council, the American bishops did not 
meet again in an official capacity until 1919. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. On January 6, 1895, Pope Leo XIII let loose the first of two major attacks on Americanism with the publication of Longingua Oceani on Catholicism in the United States, addressed solely to the American hierarchy. Reportedly, the encyclical was inspired by Archbishop Francesco Satoli, first apostolic delegate to the United States who had turned against Americanist theories after observing how they worked in actual practice. The participation of Cardinal Gibbons and other members of the American hierarchy at the World Parliament of Religions in 1893 was probably the last straw for Satoli. In his opening statement, Pope Leo XIII recalled America's Catholic heritage and the children of Francis, as well as of Dominic and Le- of Loyola, who had brought Catholicism to New World. The pontiff praised the generosity of Catholic Americans, as well as the practical nature of American Catholicism that resulted in the founding of many worthy charitable and religious institutions and the establishment of a national system of parochial schools and Catholic institutions of higher learning. This happy state, the Pope notes, was primarily the fruit of successfully implemented synods, but he also gave credit to equality of the laws and to the customs of the well-ordered republic. Then off came the Velvet Glove, for the church amongst you, unopposed by the constitution and government of your nation, fettered by no hostile legislation, protected against violence by the common laws and the impartiality of the tribunals, is free to live and act without hindrance. Yet, through all, though all this is true, it would be very erroneous to draw the conclusion that in America is to be sought the type of the most desirable status of the church, or that it would be universally lawful or expedient for state and church to be, as in America, dissevered and divorced. The fact that Catholicity with you is in good condition, nay, is even enjoying a prosperous growth, is by all means to be attributed to the fecundity with which God has endowed his church, in virtue of which, unless men or circumstances interfere, she spontaneously expands and propagates herself. But she would bring forth more abundant fruits if, in addition to liberty, she enjoyed the favor of the laws and the patronage of the public authority. Pope Leo XIII then turned his attention to the matters that were taken up at the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore in 1889, beginning with the issue of the advancement of learning with specific reference to the political and theological problems at Catholic University of America under the rectorship of Father Keene and the American College in Rome under Monsignor O'Connell. The time had come to clean house. In approving the original charter of Catholic University in 1889, the Apostolic See regarded as the fixed laws of the university, fixed law of the university to unite erudition and learning with soundness of faith and to imbue its students not less with religion than with scientific culture, explained the pontiff. But the Washington University has drifted away from this goal, said the Pope and it was time to make the professors and students, as we don't not they will, mindful of our injunctions. 
and shunning party and spirit, party spirit and strife, conciliate, conciliate the good opinion of the people and the clergy. A more subtle warning was also delivered to the American clergy at the North American College in Rome. Next on the Pope's agenda was came the matter of assigning a permanent apostolic delegation to the United States in Washington, D.C. Leo XIII had a long memory. The Holy Father stated that a legate is not a detriment to the ordinary power of the bishops, but an asset. A papal legate, he explained, is dispatched by the pontiff according to the need as the need arises, who supplying his place may correct errors make the rough ways plain and minister to the people competent to their care increased means of salvation. He asked that the American hierarchy subject themselves to a hearty submission and obedience to the church on this matter. Leo XIII then condemned the deadly pest of civil divorce and asked that American bishops, the American bishops to redouble their efforts to rid the nation of plague that had proven to be especially hostile to the prosperity of families and states. He also urged them to employ the principles on labor enunciation enunciated in Rurum Navarum and to be especially solicitous for the spiritual as well as material needs of the American Indian and Negro population. The Pope closely Pope closed his encyclical letter with the traditional apostolic benediction to the American hierarchy and their clergy and people. Longingua Oceani dealt with the, dealt the American, Americanist faction of the hierarchy a heavy but not lethal blow. Dennis O'Connell lost his job at the North American College in Rome and became Keane was removed as the rector of Catholic University of America. But with Cardinal Gibbons still at the helm of the American hierarchy, neither man suffered permanent unemployment. Actually, it was quite uh, the opposite. With the aid of Cardinal Mariano Rampola Tel Dintaro in Rome, Keane was made Archbishop of Dubuque on January 24, 1900. In 1903, Dennis O'Connell was made Rector of Catholic University of America, and in 1912, he was appointed Bishop of Richmond. Pope Leo XIII issued Testum Benevolentiae. By the turn of the 20th century, Americanism, which the Apostolic See had once viewed as a localized nuisance, had infected every quarter of the Church in the United States, due in no small part to Cardinal Gibbons' Episcopal power of appointment. By the time of his death on March 24, 1921, he had consecrated or ordained six archbishops, 24 bishops, and 644 priests. However, Americanism has spread beyond America's national borders and now threatened the universal church. The idea that Americanism was simply a cultural or political passing aberration that presented no danger to Catholic dogma and beliefs was exposed for the myth that it was. Rome was forced to act again. On January 22, 1899, almost four years to the day of the publication of Longingua Oceani, Leo XIII sent an apostolic letter addressed to our beloved son, James Cardinal Gibbons, on the heresy of Americanism with copies to all 80 bishops of the United States. Testum 
Benaventier Nostru, Nostre concerning new opinions, virtue, nature, and grace with regard to Americanism opened by reaffirming the First Vatican Council's decree on defending the deposit of faith. For the doctrine of the faith which God has revealed has not been proposed like a philosophical invention to be perfected by human ingenuity, but has been delivered as a divine deposit to the spouse of Christ to be faithfully kept and infallibly declared. Hence, that meaning of the sacred dogma is perpetually to be retained, which our Holy Mother the Church has once declared, nor is that meaning ever to be departed from under the pretense or pretext of a deeper comprehension of them. The papal letter cited the French translation of the posthumous biography of Isaac Thomas Hecker by Paulus father Walter Elliot with an introduction by Abbe Felix Recline as the source of a collection of erroneous opinions that touch not only on Christian living but also on the principles of Christian doctrine. Included in these false opinions, said Leo XIII, is the idea that the church must accommodate both her teachings as well as her discipline to the spirit of the new age in order to attract those outside the faith. This the church cannot and will not ever do, he said, because the rule of life laid down for Catholics is not of such nature that it cannot accommodate itself to the exigencies of various times and places. With regard to the new spirit of Pentecostalism, popularly attributed to Father Hecker, Father Hecker, Leo XIII, condemned the idea that external spiritual direction is superfluous or simply not useful to souls, seeking Christian perfection, the contention being that the Holy Spirit pours richer and more abundant graces than formerly upon the souls of the faithful, so that without human intervention, the teaches and guides them by some hidden instinct of his own. Yet it is a sign of no small overconfidence to desire to measure and determine the mode of the divine communication to mankind, since it wholly depends upon his own good pleasure, and he is a most generous dispenser of his own gifts. And shall anyone who recalls the history of the apostles, the faith of the nascent church, the trials and deaths of the martyrs, and above all, those olden times as fruitful and saints are to measure our age with these, or affirm that they received less of the divine outpouring from the spirit of holiness, the Pope continued. Pope Leo XIII also took to task those who seek to oversteam natural and active virtues at the expense of passive virtues. The pontiff saw the disregard of the angelical virtues erroneously styled passive as a short step to a contempt of the religious life and an attack on religious vows. With an obvious reference to the anti-authority free spirit that marked Hecker's view of the religious life, one that would require no formal vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, Leo XIII reminded Cardinal Bishop Gibbons, the longtime champion of Hecker, that whosoever binds himself to Christ with sacred vows, enjoys a greater, not lesser, freedom. On the subject of new ecumenical friends in preaching that downplay 
Catholic truths in order to make conversion appear more palatable, the Pope declared that it was not prudent to neglect that which antiquity in its long experience has approved and which is also taught by apostolic authority. The reference was seen as a condemnation of Hecker's penchant for injecting novelty into his sermons and Cardinal Gibbons' own freewheeling ecumenical misadventures. Then Pope Leo XIII let the final blow fall. From the foregoing, it is manifest, beloved son, that we are not able to give approval to those views which in their collective sense are called by some Americanism. But if by this name are to be understood certain endowments of mind which lacking, which belong to the American people, just as other characteristics belong to various other nations, and if moreover by it is designated your political condition and the laws and customs by which you are governed, there is no reason to take exception to the name. But if this is to be so understood that the doctrines which have been advertised to above are not only indicated but exalted, there can be no manner of doubt that our venerable brethren, the bishops of America, would be the first to repudiate and condemn it as being most injurious to themselves and to their country, for it would give rise to the suspicion that there are among you some who conceive and would have the Church in America to be different from what it is in the rest of the world. But the true Church is one as by unity of doctrine, so by unity of government, and she is all Catholic also. Since God has replaced the center and foundation of unity in the chair of Blessed Peter, she is rightly called the Roman Church, for where Peter is, there is the Church. Wherefore, if anybody wishes to be considered a real Catholic, he ought to be able to say from his heart the self-same words which Jerome addressed to Pope Damasus. I acknowledge no other leader than Christ and bound in fellowship with your holiness, that is, with the cheer of Peter. I know that the church was built upon him as its rock, and that whosoever gathereth not with you scattereth. We have thought it fitting, beloved son, and view of our, your high office, that this letter should be addressed especially to you. It will also be our care to see that copies are sent to the bishops of the United States, testifying again that love by which we embrace your whole country, a country which in past times has done so much for the cause of religion, and which by which will, by the divine assistance, continue to do still greater things. To you and to all the faithful of America, grant most lovingly as a pledge of divine assistance our apostolic benediction. The secret was out of the bag. Rome was fully aware that Cardinal Gibbons and other Americanist prelates were busy setting up the infrastructure for a national church, Am Church. The voluminous monographic work by Gerald Fogarty S.J., The Vatican and the Americanism Crisis, documents the existence and operations of the American prelate behind the so-called phantom heresy, which was unhappily all too real. Father Fogarty is critical of Testum 
been the Valencia Nostra, Leo XIII condemned Americanism in 1899 and introduced an era of intellectual slumber into the American church. American Catholic theology lost sight of collegiality and a dynamic concept or tradition and embraced the notions that the Pope was the sole source of authority and that scripture and tradition were separate sources of revelation. But there were still vestiges of the older theology that arose in terms of historical criticism of the scripture during the crisis known as modernism. This time, theologians, not bishops, attempted to show what was and was what was not authentic tradition. It was but a short hop, skip, and jump from Americanism to modernism. Pope St. Pius X on the heresy of modernism. At the controversial papal conclave of August 1903, following the death of Pope Leo XIII, just when the Americanists thought they had a winner and Cardinal Mariano Rampolla del Tintaro, who had helped Father John Keane secure the Archdiocese of Dubuque, God went and played a terrible trick on them. He gave them Giuseppe Melchiori Sarto, the postman's son, who ascended the chair of Peter as Pope Pius X. As a priest, pastor, bishop, colonel, and pope, Sarto was the model of the Good Shepherd, distinguished both by his piety and zeal for the faith as for his academic prowess and domestic scholarship. He promoted the lay apostolate of Catholic action as a means of restoring Christ to the family, the workplace, and the public square, which not surprisingly rendered him anathema to Americanists. But he is best remembered as a defender of the faith and malleus herectoricum, the hammer of the heretics, and the tradition of Franciscan thaumaturgist and Thomas de Torquemada. Pope Pius X referred to modernism as the synthesis of all heresies, which indeed it was. Most of the adherents of the modernist movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries that was aimed at the liberalization and deconstruction of Roman Catholicism in order to bring the church in line with the modern world were from France, England, Germany, and Italy. His most prominent proponents were French theologian Abbe Alfred Loisy, 1857-1940, professor of sacred scripture at the Institut Catholique de Paris, and the Irish-born Anglican convert, Jesuit father George Torrell, 1861-1909 in England. The early modernist movement was tied to the revolution in biblical studies already manifested in liberal Protestant circles, which held that the writers of both the Old and New Testaments were conditioned by the times in which they lived, and that there had been an evolution in the history of biblical religion. However, it was not long before virtually every aspect of tradition, dogma, and morals came under attack. Among the basic tenets of modernism, our belief in the absolute autonomy of the state unhindered by any religious authority, the absolute autonomy of the individual conscience, the evolution and development of scripture, dogmatics, and the teaching of magisterium of the church, the need to adopt modern critical methods to historical biblical research, and that although truth could not be changed, the representations of this truth can be changed. There is no question that the challenge of modernism had to be addressed 
by the Holy See. Pius, Pius X proved himself worthy of the test. The first action taken by the pontiff was to order the Holy Office to put five of Abbe Loisy's works on the Index of Forbidden Books along with other major modernist writings. Priests and scholars, known to be at the forefront of the movement, were immediately suspended or excommunicated. All matters related to sacred scripture were to be referred to the Pontifical Biblical Commission established by Pope Leo XIII in October 1902. On July 3rd, 1907, the Holy Roman and Universal Inquisition Holy Office was authorized to publish the first of three decrees against modernism, Lamentabili Sane, syllabus condemning the errors of the modernists of the 65 heretical propositions listed by the Roman Curia. Fifty were directly tied to Lossi. The following selection of propositions were condemned and prescribed. One, the ecclesiastical law which prescribes that books concerning the divine scriptures and subject to previous examination does not apply to critical scholars and students of scientific exegesis of the Old and New Testament. Five, since the deposit of faith contains only revealed truths, the church has no right to pass judgment on the assertions of the human sciences. 9. They display excessive simplicity or ignorance who believe that God is really the author of the sacred scriptures. 16. The narrations of John are not properly history, but a mystical contemplation of the gospel. The discourses contained in the gospel are theological in meditations, lack an historical truth concerning the mystery of salvation. 20. Revelation could be nothing else than the consciousness man acquired of his revelation to God. 26. The dogmas of the faith are to be held only according to their practical sense, that is to say, as perceptive norms of conduct and not as norms of believing. 27. The divinity of Jesus Christ is not proved from the Gospels. It is a dogma which the Christian conscience has derived from the notion of the Messiah. 35. Christ did not always possess the consciousness of his messianic dignity. 41. The sacraments are intended merely to recall to man's mind the ever-beneficent presence of the Creator. 45. Not everything which Paul narrates concerning the institutions of the Eucharist, 1 Corinthians 11.23-25, is to be taken historically. 47. The words of the Lord receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. John 28-22-23 in no way refer to the sacrament of penance in spite of what it pleased the fathers are trying to say. 53. The organic constitution of the church is not immutable. Like human society, Christian society is subject to perpetual evolution. 55. Simon Peter never even suspected that Christ entrusted the primacy of the, in the church to him. 58. Truth is no more immutable than man himself, since it evolved with him, in him, and through him. 59. Christ did not teach a determined body of doctrine, applicable to all times and all men, but rather inaugurated a religious movement adapted or to be adapted to different times and places. 64. Scientific progress 
demands that the concept of Christian doctrine concerning God, creation, revelation, the person of the incarnate word, and redemption to be readjusted. 65. Modern Catholicism can be reconciled with true science only if it is transformed into a non-dogmatic Christianity, that is to say, into a broad and liberal Protestantism. It is clear from even a cursory reading of the syllabus of Pius X that the modernist modernists intended to leave no stone unturned when it came to restructuring and updating the church. On September 8, 1907, Pope Pius X issued his great encyclical, Pascendi Domini Gregus, on the doctrines of the modernists, in which he elaborated on each of the modernist propositions condemned in Lamentably Sane. Not only did Pius X dissect the modernist movement with surgical precision, he also affirmed the Church's universal teachings and each of the areas under attack by the modernists. How important, most importantly, he outlined a strategy for halting the heresy and preventing its contamination of the Catholic faithful, including a thorough house cleaning of seminaries and universities in which modernist doctrines had been had been promoted. Pope Pius X attacked the modernist heretic with his characteristic candor. The modernist sustains and includes within himself a manifold personality. He is a philosopher, a believer, a theologian, an historian, a critic, an apologist, a reformer. For the modernist believer, it is an established and certain fact that the reality of the divine then does really exist in itself and quite independently of the person who believes it. If you ask on what foundation this assertion of the believer rests, he answers, in the personal experience of the individual. Here it is well to note that at once that given this doctrine of experience united with that of symbolism, every religion, even that of paganism, must be held to be true. The church and the sacraments, according to the modernists, are not to be regarded as having been instituted by Christ himself. This barred by agnosticism, which recognizes in Christ nothing more than a man whose religious consciousness has been, like that of all men, formed by degrees, but it is not enough for the modernist school that the state should be separated from the church, for as faith is to be subordinated to science, so so too in temporal matters the church must be subject to the state. From all that has proceeded, it is abundantly clear how great and how eager is the passion of such men for innovation. In all Catholicism, there is absolutely nothing on which it does not fasten. With regard to moralists, they adopt the principle of the Americanists that the active virtues are more important than the passive and are to be encouraged in, pract- in practice. There is little reason to wonder that the modernists meant all their bitterness and hatred on Catholics who zealously fight the battles of the Church. The adversaries of the Church will doubtlessly abuse what we have said what we have said to refurbish the old calumny by which we are introduced as the enemy of all science the enemy of science and of the progress of humanity. In the midst of this great danger to souls from the insidious invasions of error 
upon every hand. We beseech you may see clearly what ought to be done and labor to do it with all your strength and courage. On November 19, 1907, Pope Pius X issued the Moto Proprio Presidentia Scriptori, which bound Catholics and conscience to embrace the decision of the Pontifical Biblical Commission and impose the penalty of excommunication on those who contradicted lamentably or pacendi. The Holy Father put great emphasis on the special duty of the ordinaries of the diocese and heads of religious congregations and rectors of seminaries in culling modernists from their midst. The biblical, Pontifical Biblical Institute was established as a university-level institution under the direction of the Jesuits by Pope Pius X with the apostolic letter Minia Electa on May 7, 1909 as a center for higher studies for sacred scripture in the city of Rome and of all religious studies according to the spirit of the Catholic Church. Finally, on September 1, 1910, Pope Pius X ordered the promulgation of the motu proprio sacrum antistitum, antistitum and the anti-modernist oath and a pledge of fealty to protect the deposit of faith that was to be taken by all those who exercised the holy ministry or who taught in ecclesiastical institutions as well as canons, the superiors of the regular clergy, and those who serving in ecclesiastical bureau. And in taking, in taking the oath, all bound themselves to reject the errors that are denounced in the Pascendi and Lamentably. Thus, between 1910 and July 1967, when the anti-modernist oath was abrogated by Pope Paul VI, all clergy, pastors, confessors, and preachers, religious superiors, and professors in philosophical theological seminaries, as well as deacons to be ordained to the priesthood, swore to uphold the anti-modernist oath. This means that at the Second Vatican Council, all cardinals had taken the oath and sworn to firmly embrace and accept each and every definition that has been set forth and declared by the unerring teaching authority of the Church, especially those principal truths which are directly opposed to the errors of this day, sincerely hold that the doctrine of of faith was handed down to us from the apostles through the Orthodox Fathers in exactly the same meaning and always in the same purport. Therefore, I entirely reject the heretical misrepresentation that dogmas evolve and change from one meaning to another, different from the one which the Church had held previously. I submit and adhere with my whole heart to the condemnations, declarations, and all the prescripts contained in the encyclical Pascendi and in the decree lamentably, especially those concerning what is known as the history of dogmas, promise that I shall keep all these articles faithfully, entirely, and sincerely, and guard them inviolate, in no way deviating from them, and teaching in or in any way in word or in writing. Thus I promise, this I, this, this I swear, so help me God, and these holy gospels, of God, which I touch with my hand. 
All of these decrees and actions of Pope Pius X, especially the required anti-modernist oath and the establishment of diocesan committees of vigilance, could not have had, could not have but weighed heavily on the consciences of the Americanist hierarchy, who were actively plotting their own Am Church revolution at the very time that the Apostolic See moved to suppress the modernist movement. There were cries of witch hunt uttered by the Americanists and accusations that Pope Pius X had cut off what little creative scholarship existed in the church. Still, as a whole, seminaries in the United States remained orthodox in matters of doctrine and morals. Modernism not dead, just resting. After Tyrrell's death, Alfred Lozzi, when Tyrrell, Alfred Lozzi wrote, when Tyrrell died, it may be said that modernism, considered as a movement of overt resistance to the absolutism of Rome, died with him. Unfortunately, Lozzi's lament fell wide of the mark. Non-Catholic modernists continued to publish widely both in Europe and the United States, while Catholic modernists and Americanists circulated these and their own works surreptitiously in certain academic circles. Both groups continued their committees of correspondence. It was time to regroup and reassess their strategies and to wait a more opportune time. They did not have long to wait. Pope Pius X died on August 20, 1914, at the age of 79, just days after the opening of World War I. He was canonized by Pope Pius XII on May 29, 1954, the only pope in modern times to be so honored. His successor was Pope Benedict XV, a protege of Cardinal Rampola. Rampola had chosen Giacomo della Chiesa, to be his private secretary at the Annunciatory in Madrid and kept him on after he was called to Rome in 1887. Now Della Chiesa was Pope. Things were looking up after all. And that's the end of my podcast here, so I'll end it now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.